Welcome to the Valley Bear Community Church Podcast, and thank you for joining us online today. You're about to hear a message from our current study, One Hit Wonders. Did you know that there are five books in the Bible that have only one chapter? They are so good, so important, and full of significance that just a single chapter of writing was given a title and included among the 66 books of the Bible. In this series, we'll discover what made that one chapter of these books such a wonder. To watch any of our previous messages or find all listening platforms, we encourage you to visit www.valleybrook.cc forward slash on demand. Enjoy! Well, good morning, everybody. We want to welcome you here in the house as well as you online. As you can see, we're sort of throwing it back a little old school today. We're starting a series called One Hit Wonders. Now, if you don't know what a one hit wonder is, uh, you know, the definition of it would be something like this, that it's a, uh, a song that an artist releases that makes a massive hit, but they never, ever have another chart-topping hit. So let me give you a couple of examples, all right? 1958, Bobby Day released Rockin' Robin. Some of you are old enough to know that song. I'm old enough to know that song. Uh, 1963, one of my favorites was Wipeout by the Safaris. In 1972, here's my all-time favorite, but I won't sing it for you today. Brandy, You're a Fine Girl by Looking Glass. Um, In 1983, Eddie Grant uh, released The Electric Avenue. In uh, 1988, Bobby McFerrin Don't worry, be happy. Uh, 1995, you all remember this, the Macarena, all right. Um, The Rembrandts in 1995 released, I'll Be There For You. You may assume that was written for the sitcom Friends, but it wasn't. It was a hit that was released. Uh, I've been told that in 1997 that Hanson's Mbop was not a one-hit wonder, so I stand corrected, all right. Uh, Bad Day by uh, Daniel Powder in 2005. And maybe the most memorable one-hit wonder in recent years, and you're going to hate me for bringing this up, is Baby Shark. (laughs) Baby Shark. No, we won't sing it. (laughs) I apologize if you can't get that out of your head for the rest of the day. Now, if you're going, what is he talking about? in church about one-hit wonders. Well, let me explain. Today we're starting a series about the one-hit wonders of the Bible. And there are five one-hit wonders of the Bible. And basically the one-hit wonders are there five books in the Bible that are one chapter long. So they're a one-hit wonder, you know. For some reason, God chose to have those books written, inspired by the Holy Spirit, one chapter, and they were included in the 66 books that make up our Bible. Now, the first one we're going to look at today is the shortest book in the Old Testament. It's called Obadiah, written by Uh, someone called Obadiah. Obadiah actually means servant of the Lord. Um, So if you read through scriptures, you'll see that there are other some people named Obadiah, but we don't know if it was Obadiah the prophet. But um, talking about prophets, um, you know, when when we think about prophets, Sometimes we think about somebody who prophesies the future like a fortune teller, and and sometimes prophets did that, but that's not really the meaning of the word prophet in biblical terms. Uh, You see, a prophet was someone who was a mouthpiece for God, who spoke what God wanted spoken to the people. Their, Their job was about bringing the word of God to bear on human life, 
to proclaim the will of God in light of a very particular situation. Most of the time, the prophets were bearers of words of warning or judgment sent by God because the people wouldn't listen to God any other way. So God spoke to and through the prophets in all kinds of ways, through dreams, through visions, through signs, symbols. But no matter how the message of God came to them, this is important, it was God's message. It was binding on the people of God. It was authoritative. Uh, No prophet, no prophet was self-appointed. God appointed them and set them apart uniquely for their task, which is why you also read about false prophets. False prophets were not appointed by God. They were self-appointed. But a true prophet, prophet was God's spokesperson. And, you know, when you study the prophetic writings, uh, you will read uh, um, that God was putting these words in their mouth. He was setting them apart. He was telling them things. And generally speaking, prophetic messages have three parts, all right? First, the people, if they didn't repent and turn away from their wicked ways, they would face some type of punishment. It may be taken into captivity, maybe exiled, or, or maybe some other destruction. Secondly, There was also a message of hope that the Messiah was coming to change things. And finally, when the Messiah arrived, the people of God would be restored. They would be brought back together. They would be renewed. And and you're going to see that pattern today in the book of Obadiah. Now, some prophecies could have elements of predictions, but, but most prophetic messages were words from God to confront sinful and disobedient ways. And Obadiah is no different. So, big picture, when you uh, read prophetic books, you're going to be forced to deal with things that we don't like to deal with. For instance, God's judgment and God's punishment. So, that's just a little heads up. We're going to look at some of that today, but there's a message of hope in all of this. So, just uh, bear with me, okay? So, let's, let's begin. Let's talk about God's judgment. Now, specifically, God called Obadiah to pass judgment on the people of Edom, And he called them to do this for their sins against God and their sins against the people of Israel. Now, what makes the actions of the Edomites particularly offensive is that the Edomites are actually related by blood to the Israelites. Their their ancestry goes back to one of the two twin sons of Isaac and Rebekah. The firstborn son was Esau, his lineage are the Edomites, all right? Uh, He lost his father's blessing as the firstborn to his younger brother, Jacob. And because of Jacob's actions, the brothers became enemies for the rest of their life. And that conflict lived on through their descendants for over a thousand years. So in Obadiah's prophecy, you'll hear the specific reason God confronts Edom. Uh, Specifically, they have been prideful. They've committed violent acts against Israel. They've rejoiced when Babylon invaded Israel and destroyed Jerusalem. They actually went in and they looted Jerusalem afterwards. They've mistreated the survivors of that. And they just did a lot of horrible things to Israel. So listen to these words of God's judgment on Edom. 
The Lord says to Edom, I will cut you down to size among the nations. You will be greatly despised. You have been deceived by your own pride because you live in a rock fortress and make your home high in the mountains. Who can ever reach us way up here, you ask boastfully. But even if you soar as high as the eagles and build your nest among the stars, I will bring you crashing down. Your enemies will wipe you out completely. Every nook and cranny of Edom will be searched and looted. Every treasure will be found and taken. All of your allies will turn against you. They will help to chase you from your land. They will promise you with plotting to deceive and destroy you. Your trusted friends will set traps for you and you won't even know about it. At that time, not a single wise person will be left in the whole land of Edom. Whew. That's harsh. Now, again, I, I know none of us likes to talk about God's judgment. We'd rather talk about how loving, how caring, how gracious God is. And, and God is all of those things and more. But God is holy and God is just. He seeks to let his justice reign on the earth. And if God is just, then doesn't there have to be judgment for people who sin and who do evil? Because sin and evil are the opposite of God's holy nature, and they are thus offensive to God. In, in fact, you, you could say that sin and evil are crimes against God. So if God is completely holy and righteous, then God's justice and righteousness demand that sin and evil are punished. We wouldn't want it any other way when we think about it. You see, God judges our sinfulness and our evil deeds, but, but here's the good news. God is merciful and God knows that we cannot pay the penalty that our sins deserve. And so he sent Jesus to pay that penalty, the penalty that we deserved, and he makes salvation available to all who believe in Jesus. Dr. Miroslav Volf is a professor of systematic theology at Yale Divinity School, and, and he was born in Croatia, and he lived through the nightmare years of the ethnic cleansing that happened in what was once the country of Yugoslavia. It was very much like what we're seeing happening in Ukraine today, uh, with indiscriminate bombing, with uh, rape, and the killing of innocent people going on. And listen to his own journey as he learned about God's judgment and wrath, knowing what he experienced in his life. He writes, I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? God is love and God loves every person and every creature. And then he goes on. My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in my former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out. Some of them brutalized beyond imagination, and I could not imagine God not being angry. And he continues, he goes, or think of Rwanda in the last decade of the past century where 800,000 people were hacked to death in 100 days. How did God react to that carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandfatherly fashion? 
by refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrator's basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. He hates sin. He hates evil. He hates it being perpetrated against his creation, his people. Whether those people call his name or not, he hates it. Have you ever stopped to consider that? I mean, if, if God is love, then, the, then that very fact demands that God would have to deal with sin and evil in a just fashion. If God loves us, then God cannot turn a blind eye to sins and evil that are created against his, that are committed against his creation. His love demands judgment. And his love also demands punishment. And that's the case for the sin and evil that Edom perpetrates against Israel and God lays out his case against them in the book of Obadiah. And this is what we read. Because of the violence you did to your close relatives in Israel, you will be filled with shame and destroyed forever. When they were invaded, you stood aloof, refusing to join them, to help them. Foreign invaders carried off their wealth and cast lots to divide up Jerusalem, but you acted like one of Israel's enemies. You should not have gloated when they, when they exiled your relatives to a distant land. You should not have rejoiced when the people of Judah suffered such misfortune. You should not have spoken arrogantly in that terrible time of trouble. You should not have plundered the land of Israel when they were suffering such calamity. You should not have gloated over their destruction when they were suffering such calamity. You should not have seized their wealth when they were suffering such calamity. You should not have stood at the crossroads killing those who tried to escape. You should not have captured the survivors and handed them over in their terrible time of trouble. I want you to notice something here. The Edomites were guilty of sin because of the things that they did against Israel and because of the things that they didn't do to help Israel. God's pointing out that there is sin and evil in what we commit and that there is sin and evil in what we omit. When Edom did violence to Israel and invaded Israel and gloated and rejoiced over their downfall and plundered them and killed and captured the survivors, they sinned. But when Edom stood back and didn't help Israel, they also sinned. And God judged them and punished them for both their sins of commission and their sins of omission. They deserved punishment for their sin and evil deeds. And the reality is, I think we'd all agree that all evil deserves punishment. I mean, think about this. Imagine, imagine just for a moment that Adolf Hitler was found alive and in hiding and was brought before a judge. His crimes were read. It took nine hours to read them. But at the end, the judge says this, I see what you've done. 
Millions murdered, but I think you've learned your lesson, so I'm going to let you go. He bangs his gavel and cries, not guilty. What rises in our hearts when we consider such a scenario? That emotion is outrage at injustice. We know the verdict is not just. It feels intolerable to us. So evil requires an equivalent punishment. We wouldn't want a loving and merciful and gracious God who did not deal justly with evil and sin. So listen to God's sentence against Edom. The day is near when I, the Lord, will judge all godless nations. As you have done to Israel, so it will be done to you. All your evil deeds will fall back on your heads. Just as you are swallowed up my people, just as you swallowed up my people on my holy mountain, so you and the surrounding nations will swallow the punishment I pour out on you. Yes, all you nations will drink and stagger and disappear from history. The people of Israel will be a raging fire and Edom, a field of dry stubble. The descendants of Joseph will be a flame roaring across the field, devouring everything. There will be no survivors in Edom. I, the Lord, have spoken. So total destruction for Edom was the punishment. And today, Edom no longer exists. Pastor James White shares a message that inspired this series and this message. And this is what he writes. He goes, the kingdom of Edom was destroyed in 553 B.C. We're not exactly sure how or by whom, but we know through archaeology that signs of destruction by at least something that included fire from that time have been found in the rubble of those ancient Edomite towns. Now, again, I'm very aware this this is a tough topic, and we don't like to spend a lot of time on it, but, but it's important for us to discuss because going back to verse 15, it says, the day is near when I, the Lord, will judge all godless nations. All nations and all people will be judged by God one day. Now, it's, it's important for me to say that regarding God's punishment of Eden, that God rarely hands out this kind of punishment, the kind that he exacted on Edom. But God does judge and punish sin and evil. Now, for followers of Christ, we also know God's grace and his mercy and his restoration. Here's what the prophecy says about the restoration of Israel. But Jerusalem will become a refuge for those who escape. It will be a holy place, and the people of Israel will come back to reclaim their inheritance. Then my people living in the Negev will occupy the mountains of Eden. Those living in the foothills will possess the Philistine plains and take over the fields of Ephraim and Samaria. And the people of Benjamin will occupy the land of Gilead. The exiles of Israel will return to their land and occupy the Phoenician coast as far north as Zarephath. The captives from Jerusalem exiled in the north will return home and resettle in the towns of the Negev. Those who have been rescued will go up to Mount Zion in Jerusalem and rule over the mountains of Eden, and the Lord himself will be king. So in his grace and in his mercy, we see the prophecy that God will restore Israel. Those those, 
names of the tribes that we hear are, are symbolic of the restoration. And, and historically, we know that God did restore Israel after the Babylonian exile. And that, notice that last phrase in the last verse. The Lord himself will be king. Obviously, we know now, we have 2020 hindsight. This is a foreshadowing of the coming of the king, the coming of King Jesus to save us, but also to rule in our lives and our hearts and on the earth. So I, I want to bring this full circle for us. I, I want to draw three conclusions that we need to embrace about Obadiah's one-hit wonder. First, the Bible tells us that all people are sinners. You and me, everybody, we all are sinners. And God will judge and punish our sins. And there's only one way to be forgiven of our sins, and that's by admitting that we are a sinner and accepting Christ's forgiveness purchased for us by his death on the cross and then living, following him as our Lord, our Savior, but most importantly, our King, because he came to establish his kingdom. Second, for Christ followers, even though we know through our faith in Christ our sins are forgiven and we're promised eternal life, the Bible tells us that one day all people, including us, will stand before the judgment throne of God and will be judged regarding what our reward will be in heaven. It'll be based on what we did and didn't do in our lifetime on earth. Since we follow King Jesus, who calls us to embrace and live out his kingdom values, including love and mercy and justice and righteousness, that should cause us to reflect on how we are living our lives. Because if we claim that Jesus is our king, are we living out the kingdom values that he brought to earth? We have to ask ourselves, are we doing that? And particularly, particularly in this season of history, we have to ask ourselves, is Jesus king? Is he above all things, above all positions, all people, all personalities, all politics, about whatever's in our life? Is he the king of our lives? Because that's what he came to be. Not just to save us, but to be the one that we follow through thick and thin, in all areas of our lives. And finally, there's one other conclusion and observation I want to make. I hope you noticed that Israel endured and suffered many catastrophes and problems. And I hope you noticed also that God delivered them and restored them. Now, it's important for us to recognize that because uh, right now, uh, we're living in a time that feels like the world is falling apart. Uh, in fact, uh, it's probably not the first time that the human race has felt that. I remember years and years ago hearing either my parents, probably my grandparents say, you know, the, the world is falling apart. And the world feels like it's careening out of control today. But just like God was in control when uh, Israel captured and uh, was captured and exiled into Babylon, and just like in my grandparents' day when uh, 
they thought the world was falling apart. God is still in control. He was in control then, and God is in control today. So what does that mean for us? It means we trust God in the easy times and in the difficult times, on the mountaintops and in the valleys. And we remember that, that Jesus came to be our king, and he reigns over all things, and we need to follow him. He has done that for us. He desires for us to love him and to follow him and to be his ambassadors in this world. So it's not just me and Jesus or just you and Jesus. It's what Jesus wants us to do with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ and what he wants us to bring into the world, his kingdom values. He's in charge and in control. Thank you for listening to our podcast. It is our sincere hope that it has blessed you. For more information, visit our website at www.valleybrook.cc.